Hello and welcome to the weekly message podcast from Crozet United Methodist Church in Crozet, Virginia. We invite you to join us in person any Sunday for our contemporary service at 9.30 a.m. or for a more traditional service at 11 a.m. Please visit us online at www.crozetunitedmethodist.org for further information. We hope you enjoy this week's message from Crozet UMC. continuing our worship series on toxic Christianity, two things that we would never want to combine, toxicity and Christianity. But because we are human beings, that sometimes that happens. Toxic refers to something being transformed in an unholy way, something that is probably tainted by human will and sin. And unfortunately, this can happen even in the church because we are human beings and we are not perfect. We are flawed, we are bent to sinning, but when we take the time to look at ourselves and to carefully examine who we are, what we say and what we do, perhaps it is an opportunity for us to right what is wrong and to find a way to purify and heal ourselves so that we don't continue to create obstacles and barriers for each other and for those who are not yet a part of our family of faith. So last week we talked about hypocrisy, and this week it goes kind of hand in hand, and that is cynicism and the cynical Christian. Now, maybe you have met or encountered a cynical Christian in your time in the church. Maybe you have been a cynical Christian in your time in the church. And that happens because cynicism is when we start to prejudge what another person is thinking and feeling when we try to determine what their motives are. In fact, we actually determine for ourselves what we think their motives are. And unfortunately, most cynicism is that we believe that their motives are not pure and true. In fact, you heard a little bit of that from Paul, that some people were proclaiming the gospel not from righteousness and a desire to do what God's will is, but for their own reasons. So Paul is not immune to cynicism either. And Paul was not perfect, even though he was an apostle, and he does admit that he's not perfect. But we have a lot that we can learn from just this short passage in his letter to the church at Philippi. Now, Paul loved the Philippians. He had a long-standing relationship with them. He had been part of planting Christianity there, and he had been nurturing it and cultivating it. And if you continue to read this letter to the Philippians, what you find is there is a lot of language of love and respect, and even admiration. He appreciates them, not just as the body of Christ in Philippi, but as individual Christians, and the ways in which they have reached out to him and helped to sustain him with their prayers and their actions and their fortitude. For Paul finds himself imprisoned. He is actually being held at a facility where the imperial guard are stationed in Rome. There is the Roman governor, the governor over all the other governors. This would be the governor that was over Pontius Pilate in Jerusalem. And so this is a place of incredible political power and authority. He is at a place where the most offensive are taken. And here he is, and he is struggling with, what do I do? Is it right that an apostle of Jesus Christ, a disciple who is passionate about sharing the love and salvation of our Lord and Savior, be imprisoned for this? Be persecuted because he believes that all people can be saved and are loved? Is this what is just? Well, no, it's not. 
But what Paul discovers is that God is a redeeming God. And God can redeem even horrible situations like this. Human sin has placed Paul where he is. Those who fear the gospel of Jesus Christ, those who resent the gospel of Jesus Christ, those who resent the transformation that is being experienced in society as this same person dares to inform people in his letter to Galatians that all people are equal and loved. That in Jesus Christ, there is no Greek or Jew. There is no free or slave. There is no male or female. Radical ideas. The idea that every single person is a human being and of sacred worth. And that is something that is starting to ruffle the feathers of those who have benefited from the stratification of the Greco-Roman society. And as he continues to preach these holy truths, people see him as a threat to their comfort, their way of life, and their culture. And so all of these things have worked together to place Paul where he is. But he says that even now, that God is doing something good with his state of being. And you heard a little bit about what he believes our job is. Our scripture today began with a prayer. And this is my prayer, that your love may overflow more and more with knowledge and full insight. Because there is a difference from being known of and being known. You can know of a person and not know them intimately. And if we want to be known intimately, if we want to be those that are more than just acquaintances in the body of Christ, but are truly members of the body of Christ, then we have to be willing to know one another. And how do you know another person unless you invite them to share of themselves? And so a little while ago when I was talking to the children, I shared with them the fact that sometimes we think we can read other people's minds. Right? This is not because we're performing some kind of magic act on Johnny Carson. Instead, this is because we believe that we can identify the motives of other people. Have you ever thought that you understood why somebody was doing something? And sometimes you might have ascribed to them a positive thing. Oh, they they want to be helpful. They're trying. But if what they have said and done is hurtful to you or hurtful to someone that you love, then you might not be so graceful in the motives that you ascribe to them. Well, clearly they're selfish. Clearly they don't care about anybody else but themselves. And that's when we start to slip into sin because we don't know why other people do what they do. Sometimes we don't know why we do what we do. Have you ever found yourself saying and doing something and being like, what am I doing? <laughs> it just came out. I mean, how many times have you been told, you know, oh my gosh, it's like your mother or your father is speaking right through you right now. And you're like, oh my goodness, I didn't think that was going to happen. Or sometimes you are around somebody so often that you think you can predict what they are going to say and do. When I was growing up, my sister, who is almost 10 years younger than me, used to get a look right before she did something that was going to get her in trouble. And that look wasn't because she was the incarnation of a demonic spirit. That look was as she was weighing the options of 
my will versus what's going to happen when I do it. And more often than not, my sister's will would win. She had a strong will. And then one day, I was in charge of watching her, which was always a blessed event, and she was looking up high in the kitchen. And I was looking at her as she was looking up, and then she got that look. And I was looking at her, getting her look, and I said, what is it that you want? And she told me what it was that she wanted. She wanted something high on a shelf, which meant that she was going to climb up on the counter in her dirty feet, and then she was probably going to use the next level of cabinetry to kind of scale upward, which is not allowed in our household, and then ultimately get something that is probably not for her because it's way up there anyway. And I said, well, what is it that you want? And she told me what she wanted, and I said, well, I can, I can help you. Let me help you instead of getting in trouble. Because later on, I'm going to be making dinner on that same countertop. Don't climb on it. And what we find is that I was able to help my sister, and my sister didn't have to get punished for that. And so instead of ascribing, you know, look, she's just trying to get into trouble, I was able to ask her, and even at her young age, she was able to tell me what it was that she wanted. Why don't we give that same grace to each other as adults? When we encounter somebody who seems to be in conflict with what we feel or what we think, or God forbid, if you've ever been a Methodist long enough and you've ended up on a committee or a board, you might have encountered a cynical Christian, or better yet, a cynical Methodist. Have you ever experienced where you're in a meeting and somebody says, I have an idea, let's try this, and then you wait, and then you hear it? That'll never work. We tried that once a long time ago, and it didn't work then, and it's not going to work now. Does this sound familiar? This happens, right? And what ends up happening is that we can decide that the person who is being cynical clearly doesn't love Jesus Christ, clearly doesn't care about our church and our church family, clearly is in conflict. I mean, you can take this to really far extremes. They're possessed. They're, there's an evil spirit at working within them. Instead of saying, why are you feeling this way? Tell me about what happened the last time. How did it go? What happened? What might we do differently? Because the person that was willing to be authentic and vulnerable and share their idea suddenly might no longer want to share anything. They might feel shot down and excluded, so much so that people often have that experience and walk away from the church. But we who are here, who have persevered through any experience of cynicism or, God forbid, have perpetuated our own, we have an opportunity to change how we act, change how we speak to one another, and ultimately change how we think and feel about one another. And that's what Paul is inviting us to do. Paul was not universally loved. I haven't met anybody who is. Jesus wasn't even universally loved. How do we expect to be universally loved? But Paul had a lot of people that he rubbed the wrong way. He wanted to do things a particular way. He felt empowered to do things a particular way. And if you didn't agree with Paul, then generally that wasn't going to go very well. And so you hear a little bit of that tainting his words today. 
when he starts to talk about why some people are preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. Preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ has never been easy. Preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ has always made you vulnerable. Because not everybody likes Jesus. Not everybody likes the idea that any person that wants to be forgiven can be forgiven. And there are still people that don't like the idea that this person that I can't stand is beloved to God. Surely God and I feel the same way about every person. Instead, it's a radical reordering of how we think about relationship that Paul is preaching. But it doesn't mean that he's immune to the cynicism. He feels it too. And it's kind of laced in some of his letters. Like when he talks about the Judaizing Christians in Galatia. He talks about them and he says, you know, they are just out of control, those people. They clearly don't understand. Meanwhile, even in Christianity today, we know that we are not all the same. We can't even claim here at Crozet that we're all the same because we have two totally different worship services. We don't even worship God the same and sing the same songs and pray the same prayer and do the same liturgy at 9 o'clock that we're doing now at 11. So we recognize that there is divergence and diversity within the body of Christ. And oftentimes when Christians historically have encountered other Christians that didn't agree, tragically their answer was to separate and go their own way. That's why today there are more than 64,000 denominations in Christianity. More of us are divided than united. More of us look at each other and are cynical about what they believe and how they worship and how they enact their faith than we are convinced that we are brought together and transformed by Jesus Christ. So if we want to continue down this path, then what we will continue to offer to the world is a fractured version of Christianity. It's a version of Christianity that we prefer because we're here. But it doesn't speak to everyone. So how do we know what will speak to others if we don't ask? If we don't invite them to share? One of the things that I have learned over the course of my time in ministry is that sometimes we have colloquialisms and things that we say that we should stop saying. And I find myself saying them too. Even as I was preparing for today, I found myself going one time, you know, I know what you must be thinking. No, I don't. I have no idea what you must be thinking. I have a fear of what you might be thinking, but I don't know what you're thinking. So the next time somebody is looking at me like I am insane, and I'm not, I have a psychological exam to prove that I am not. But the next time somebody looks at me like I'm insane, I'm going to try to stop and ask them, okay, what is it you're thinking? How can we navigate this? Because clearly, we're not connecting in the same way. So what is it that we can do? And that's the hard part, right? It's so much easier when you encounter negativity, when you encounter somebody who's pessimistic or somebody who's so jaded. It's so easy to go, that person is irredeemable. That person is just cranky and they're so set in their ways. They don't want to hear about anybody else or any new way of doing anything. We are dismissive. And that happens because, quite frankly, that is the way of the world. If you don't like the way 
things are happening outside these doors, people are more than happy to write you off, cut you off. But we can't do that in the body of Christ. We are a people who have been reconciled to God. We are a people that God is requiring to be reconciled to one another. We cannot expect that God will do for us what we will not do for one another. And we can no longer have preferential treatment for those that are within our family, within our family of faith. We have to start looking at every single person like God looks at us. God has looked at you from before the day of your birth, knew you in the water of the womb, knew every heartbeat, every moment of your formation. And before that day of your birth, when a parent first looked at you, named you, and embraced you, God knew your name and loved you and was holding you in the arms of grace. Why don't we look at other people like that? What is it that makes it so easy to look at another person, another human being, and not see a beloved? Not see a brother, a sister, a sibling in Jesus Christ? Why is it that sin often manifests itself in us as a rejection of another person rather than a rejection of how people expect us to receive another person? Have you ever had a friend that was quirky? I'm usually that friend. So if you've ever had a friend that's quirky and you try to introduce them, have you ever done that thing where you're like, okay, they're a little different, right? They're, a little, they're not exactly like everybody else. And you try to kind of pave the ground for that. But you're like, but, you know, I really like them and you should meet them. Right? You try to lay a little bit of groundwork, kind of grease the wheels a little bit so that you can kind of overcome the shock of the first time you, you meet the strange person. And then what you find is that you are trying to connect people that you're not necessarily sure are going to like each other, right? Or that if your friend is really special, people are going to be like, that's just weird. And it's true. Some of us are just weird. But here's the thing. Have you ever gotten to know somebody who's weird and realized that you love them? Have you ever gotten to know somebody that other people had already rejected and didn't like and told you, you're not going to like this person, this person is such a pain. This person is horrible. That is us judging a person based upon our experiences. And we don't have that in the United Methodist Church. Do you know that? One of the best parts about being clergy in the United Methodist Church is that I don't have to judge your worthiness to come and take communion. I love that. There are other denominations where that, you have to bear that burden. I don't want to do that. I don't want us to have to go somewhere and listen, and I don't want to have to listen to all the bad things that you've done and all the good things that you didn't do and then decide whether or not I'm going to give you communion. Because if I do that, then I have to let somebody do that to me, right? Because I preached on hypocrisy last week. And I'm not exactly looking forward to that either. But instead, we are a denomination that believes in your decisions. If you want to come here, then this is for you. If you want to experience Jesus Christ, then let me introduce you. 
if you want to taste just a taste of God's grace, it is my pleasure to serve you. I don't have to worry about that. I have been liberated from that judgment. I have been set free. Don't you want to be set free? It is such a heavy burden to hold something against somebody. It is a horrible thing to let the past direct the future. You came here today, and in this church, it's probably been a month since you had communion. For some of you, it's been less than that. But I guarantee us that every single person here has sinned between the last time we took communion. Every single one of us. But here's the thing. God doesn't go, you know what? I have given you so many chances that today I'm cutting you off. God forgives us every time we ask. And when another apostle by the name of Peter tried to figure out just how many times he had to forgive, he was probably dumbfounded by the answer Jesus gave him. He was trying to get an answer, right? We, we are a people of three strikes and you're out. American baseball at its finest. We are a three strikes and you're out kind of society right now. Right? And so sometimes we kind of carry that over into our relationships. Sometimes we carry that into the church. Three strikes and you're out. You do the same thing or you hurt people three times and you're out. That's not what Jesus says. Jesus told Peter when Peter asked, how many times do I have to forgive? Seven Seven times seven? Seventy-seven times? Seven means the completion in the scriptures. So when Jesus says seven times seven or seventy-seven, you have to do it until it is done, till it is over. And who decides when it is over? Jesus Christ, when he comes back and ends this time and starts the new. So we have to forgive. We are a people that cannot write other people off because we have not been written off. Every time we need to be reminded that that grace is for us, here it is. Every time we confront our failures and our flaws and our sin, and we just wonder, God, can you forgive me again? Here it is. And it is here because on the night in which Jesus knew that one of his own one of his precious beloved 12 was going to betray him into the hands of not just his religious enemies, but his political enemies. And he would suffer and die. He stopped everything to give them this. And he was giving it to us. Of all the things that we have lost through the ages, of all the, the pieces of the ancient church, the apostolic church that began, of all those things that have just disappeared from time, this remains. This is our legacy. And this bread and this cup reminds us that it is never too late. And so today, when you have the opportunity to once more open your arms and your hearts to receive God's grace, may you let it envelop you so that the next time you are dealing with somebody in the church or outside the church who just seems so negative, so bitter, 
so against everything that you think and feel and say and do and you. Remember this moment. Remember and try to open yourself as this table is open and try to grant them some grace and ask them what is really going on. If you've ever been in a relationship that has tried to endure through time, then you know that it's not always smooth sailing. You know that. Or is everybody before me and everybody after me is ever going to say, marriage is work, right? That's one of the big ones that we talk about. It's work. And sometimes it feels like you don't know the person with whom you're in a relationship. What happened to you? Who are you? And if that's the way you're going to come at relationship, then you're never going to know. But what helps a relationship overcome division and hurt and suffering and change in time is the investment. How are you? What is going on with you right now? How are you feeling? What is, what is behind your words and your, your actions today? That is the difference between a disciple of Jesus Christ and a person of the world. A disciple cares about the relationship not being right. And when you, for whatever reason, choose a relationship over being declared objectively right, you are correct. Because that is what Jesus has modeled for us. He did not show up in his three years of earthly ministry and look at people and go, let me tell you what's wrong with you, let me tell you what's wrong with you, and how I'm going to fix you. That is not how Jesus operated. You cannot find that in all four gospel accounts. What you can find is this. He went to where people were, and he engaged with them. He blessed them, he fed them, he helped them, he healed them. But more than that, he was with them and he listened. He listened to what they said and what they wanted, what they needed. And then he gave of himself. Don't we want to be a body of Christ that does that? That doesn't look at the world and say, I know what's wrong with this and here's how we're going to fix you. But there's brokenness here. How did we get here? How can we get beyond here? Because this is not the end for us, brothers and sisters. This is not our end. You are going to live past the end of this worship service. You are going to live into the days and hopefully the years from now. And when you do, you will realize, as we all come to realize, that every day is an opportunity to move closer toward the kingdom to come. Not because of chronology, not because of the degeneration of this form, but by the perfection of God's love, God working within us. And sometimes you get so close, you can taste it. May we learn to respond to people in a way that brings us back here. Not just because we are sinners who need once more to taste God's grace, but because we want to come back to the table and share with Jesus how we have triumphed over our own sin and how we have loved in his name. 
and maybe even, God willing, bring another person to meet our Lord. May it be so. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Thank you again for joining us for this week's podcast. We hope you found the message meaningful, and we invite you to join us in person as we gather for worship at Crozet United Methodist Church every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. and 11 a.m. Please visit us online at www.crozetunitedmethodist.org to learn about ways you can connect with God and your neighbors through the ministries of Crozet UMC. Have a great week.